recording? We're good? Good to go. All right. We are here with my good, good friend, proud to say my good friend, Mr. Roger Wendell. Again, uh, we are uh, hosting the show today at the Wendell Museum of Animal Conservation. Thank you, Roger, for letting us uh, film these few podcasts here. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing good. Are you nervous? Not a bit. <laughs> good. Um, so I'm just going to get right into it. I have a question for you. Okay. And it's a business question. Um, you have dental hygienists and you have dentists. You have paralegals and attorneys that work together. You have nurses or PAs and doctors. And in those scenarios, there's a big discrepancy in pay, right? There is. Has... Have you ever experienced or known anybody that experienced any resentment from the nurse to the doctor or the paralegal to the attorney? And if so, how do you manage that? I really haven't experienced that. Um, there is a range of pay for these positions, and those people that go into those positions know what they are. Um, we pay based on experience. Uh, most of my dental hygienists have been with us for years. So they're at the high range of the uh, pay scale. The doctors are in a different boat. You know, they, they, the, the hygienists can't function without a doctor being under them, really. Although in the state of Washington, they can, general hygienists can have their own practice. Realistically, it doesn't happen. Kind of like a nurse practitioner. Can right, never right, right. Well, before Ryan gets mad at me, uh, uh, we have this new thing we're doing I forgot to do. So, uh, Roger, I'm going to name off a few things that I think you are, and you tell me what I'm missing. Uh, dentist. Yes. Uh, businessman. Yes. Uh, animal wildlife conservationist. Yes. Um, avid hunter. Yes. Avid fisherman. Yes. Grandfather. Yes. Father. Yes. Husband. I have, you haven't missed anything. I mean, you about covered it. Did I cover What did I miss? <laughs> Nothing? Right. Good. Without getting into details. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the reason I asked that question is um, it seems when I, when I go to my networking groups and I'm talking with other people, I kind of hear people struggling with that, managers, where right. they might have um, – uh, a uh, well-paid employee uh, working with somebody that is quite a level up in pay. And for the most part, it's okay, but what happens when the, the person in the lower position starts to get upset because, well, I do just as much work, I put in just as many hours, but I'm not making that pay. I guess in a medical field, there's a big education gap, right? Or Yes and no. There's more of a there, there's more of a uh, sense of ownership, which drives that. For example, the longer a, a professional has been with you, the more the expectations are in terms of pay, ownership, etc. Less so with non-contracted people. Uh, like dental assistants and dental hygienists and non-professional people. Gotcha. Yeah. And the way a dentist practice works, 
and I'm not super knowledgeable on this, but it almost seems like some of the dentists may be running a business within a business, like they're running their book of business or their practice under a, uh, under the dentist practice. Is that kind of accurate? Um, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. Um, we run our practice as a practice. There's no subsidiaries. Is that what you're asking? Well, like, let's say I go to a doctor's office where there's four doctors. Right. I see one doctor, right? Right. I have my preferred doctor. But um, am I part of his book of business? Does that make sense? Okay. Because so, I'm his patient, right? Correct. It, it, does, does a dentist or a doctor look at it as um, uh, these are my patients, this is my book of business or my, the people I take care of, or is it all kind of under the umbrella of one office or is it all each office run differently? Well, it's both. It's both. We, and it's pretty much driven by the patients. You know, if they have a, if a patient has a certain preference, they okay. will say that. If they don't, they will take a dentist who's available. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. And, um, uh, not necessarily in your practice, but let's say it's a doctor's office. Are the physicians normally paid the same, whether they have, let's say you and I are doctors together and I have more patients than you? Do it, well, I, I, I don't know about physicians, but our office, yes, there's, a definite, there's definitely a difference. Interesting. So sure. if you and I are both dentists and we're looking, working alongside each other, but I'm better at getting new patients, then my compensation will, re will reflect that. Um, well, your, your, your compensation will reflect it in how much you're able to produce. So if you're a person that is loved by everybody, you're going to have a ton of patience. If you're not, you probably won't have, unless somebody, you have a special talent, which is unique to your profession. And we've had that situation occur where the dentist himself is not particularly a amiable person, but he has the technical skills and ability. Gotcha. And his skills are just called upon a lot. Right, right. Uh, so millennials is a big topic right now. Yes. Are you seeing that with your practices? Are you seeing a difference in work ethic or the type of employees that are in that millennial age range? Um, if, if, if I have, I haven't noticed it. Uh, most of the, the, the professionals that have applied for me have been out of school and very ambitious. They, they, wanna, they wanna move forward. See, I, I feel kind of bad for the millennials because they all get lumped into this one category of people that are entitled, that live in their parents' house till they're 25 years old yeah. and don't wanna go out and be ambitious, but I know a lot of millennials that are over the top ambitious and have a very um, uh, hard work ethic. And maybe it's because you're in the medical field, you see a different caliber of millennials. Well, yeah, because we've got guys who've gone through college and they've gone through dental school, and these guys want to make something of themselves. They made that decision a long time ago. They're not sitting on their their parents' wallets, so to speak. And do you, um, uh, with let's say you're a millennial now, and you're going to go to uh, 
college, then your ambition is to get into dental school. Right. Is that a different experience now than it was when you did it? I think the mindset's the same. You want to make it on your own. The, char you the charger's in the uh, REI laptop bag. And you have the ambition <laughs> to do so. And it usually comes from within. It doesn't come from your parents, and it doesn't come from your friends. It comes from you. So when you were, when you graduated high school, what did you know that you wanted to become a dentist? Absolutely. And when did you come to that realization? Was it a meeting with a counselor? Or? No. No, I just sort of wanted to be in the medical field, and I, I really focused on dentistry. And I, it's been a long time, so I don't exactly remember why. <laughs> but I did, and I, I followed through with that all through college and got into dental school. Applied to four dental schools, got into all of them. Um, I chose University of Pennsylvania because it was an Ivy League school, had a great reputation. That's why I went there. What, um, were, what were your four schools? Hmm? What were the four schools that... Uh, uh, University of Buffalo, University of Pittsburgh. Um, the last one escapes me. All East Coast, though. Yeah, all East Coast. What, what did you think of University of Pennsylvania? University of Pennsylvania had a, a, a great reputation for high-quality clinicians. Um, the father of root canal therapy, uh, Louis Grossman, uh, was was a professor there. Uh, Walter Cohen, who was the father of periodontology, was a professor there. Uh, it just seemed like the place to go. You know, that's where my sister graduated. Is that right? With, yeah, in downtown Philadelphia, right? No, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What an awesome place to go to college, as, yeah. as far as being in a big city like uh, that. It was a great experience. And founded by Benjamin Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. And Ryan, you, you walk around the campus and some of the buildings are made out of stone and you just feel like it's been there forever. It has been. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, you know, cobblestone streets and pretty cool. Very cool. So, yeah. um, you know, my sister recently graduated from there a few years ago and the culture on that campus seems nothing like the culture of college campuses when you turn on the news at night. Was it that way when you were there? Because when did you graduate from university? Oh, no, 69. We didn't have the multitude of cultural defects that we have now. Yeah. We just didn't have it then. Was there a lot of, like, uh, protesting over no, Vietnam nothing, or anything like nothing, that there? Nothing happened like that. Why do you think that? And is? I was at the height of the Vietnamese, Vietnam War era. Yeah. We didn't have anything like that there. The students were pretty much driven by their personal desires to move forward. So when I told you that I was doing this podcast and I said, Roger, can I film my podcast in your museum? And you asked me what it was about and I said, it's kind of success stories and I want to hear about failures. And you said, everyone wants to hear about your success stories, but nobody wants to hear about failures. And for every one success you have, you have 100 failures. Well, it's pretty close. I don't think it's quite that bad, but <laughs> it, it's, it's true. I've been pretty successful in dentistry because I understand the field. I, I've tried to move with the, the way the economy has worked and so on and so forth. 
So we've been okay doing that. Um, I, I guess the, the bottom line is you have to know what you don't know. And if you want to move into a field you don't know about, you have to find people that do and that people are successful doing it. And I believe that's what I've done. I'm not a real estate expert, but I'm involved in real estate. Am I a broker? No. Am I a contractor? No. Do I understand the field? Yes. So if I'm going to make an investment in real estate, it's going to be with somebody I really know knows the market and knows what the, how to do things. So <clears throat> Ryan and I both go to a lot of motivational seminars, a lot of uh, personal development's a big focus on, on ours for the last five years, and that's kind of what motivated us to this podcast. And Were you ever, uh, with a lot of times you hear, um, uh, don't be afraid of failure. Failure makes you stronger. You have to embrace it. Yeah. Did you, w There are there some parts of your career or life in general where you, were faced with an idea or a risk you were going to take and fear was definitely in the forefront where yeah, it made I, you think I, about I, it? Yeah, I, I think sometimes you're better off of what you don't do than what you do. And as you take a look at the realities of the situation that you're in, you need to make a determination about, hey, is this reasonable or not? And what's this going to cost? And take a look at the economic value and so on and so forth. Is, uh, where are we going to end? That's an even bigger question. If we, get in, if we get in, how do we get out? And I think that's even a bigger question. Um, yeah, I, I, I always, when I think about uh, business opportunities, so to speak, and there are many, you really have to take a close look at where that's going. And you can't be afraid of it, but you can't just jump in either. It could cost you a lot of money. Sure. And your reputation. That too. You just, uh, Clark County just celebrated 45 years of uh, community involvement. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, how did that feel? <laughs> I never really, really thought about it, to tell you the truth. I've always been here, and and um, so I, I was actually surprised when the Chamber of Commerce came up, and there we there we were. I came floating in from a fishing trip, and <laughs> luckily I changed my clothes, and all of a sudden here are these people in red jackets, and here I am in my black shirt. Thank God I had that on, and. Um, congratulating me for the 45 years and I really never even thought about it it was just kind of a flow that we was always we've always had I, I when I when I do something I stick to it that's why and I I really look at it as a all inclusive long-term involvement I don't look at business involvements as something being short-term and so I I really never even get a thought the fact it was 45 years. Um, I think that says a lot about your reputation, though. Have, have you always so. been conscious about your reputation? Um, 
Yes, I, I, I feel, I, I don't, no, I haven't been conscious about it. I just feel that if you do the right thing, it all falls into place. Sure. That's sort of how I feel about it. I mean, am I conscious about it? If I was conscious about it, I'd be going, what am I doing wrong? Right? So I really haven't thought about it much. I mean, I, I, I feel if I'm doing the right thing and I'm, I'm doing the right things for the, for, the, for the populace that comes to me, that's as good as it gets. So instead of being focused on your reputation, you just focused on being the best taking, person you can taking be. Taking care of the people that come to us, yes. Yeah. I have a tendency to get too wrapped up in my reputation, and Ryan reminds me of that once in a while. Everything okay over there, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just had a question for Roger. Uh, yeah. when, when, when you're talking about thinking about things or not thinking about things, do you have, do you have times in your life where you know we're sitting here in this beautiful animal museum you know, that you've, amassed through the last what 30 plus years of of right. hunting right. um you know you have a beautiful home that overlooks the river when you're here or in your museum or when you're on a fishing trip or something do, do you have moments where you just kind of just think i've i've done this I've, I've made this for myself or the people that i've surrounded myself with do you have those moments that just kind of give you goosebumps where you've where you can just really take in what you've accomplished in life? Well, no, I, 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 what, what gives me goosebumps is being around the people that I enjoy. And, yeah, I, I've had, I've had uh, since I've been a teenager, I've loved hunting and fishing and outdoor stuff, if you will. But really gives me goosebumps is to be around people I enjoy. Being out there on the river, in a boat, having conversation, enjoying nature, whether it rains, shines, blows, doesn't matter. That's, to me, that's what's enjoyable. I guess that's, that's the a easiest. good answer. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way to look at it. Uh, if, if I was looking at counting the number of ducks or fish that I catch, I mean, it would be a, a game of statistics. I, I'm not interested in that. I'm going to polarize myself right now. Polarize the show. Is that okay, Ryan? Yeah. So I was recently at a, uh, a country club. And uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say that there's a, a stereotype of country club people, but there is. I left there going, man, Roger's one of the nicest guys I know. And from a success, financially success level, a lot of those people that were there that night probably aren't even in the same realm. And so, uh -huh. I mean, I was trying to figure out what makes Roger different. I mean, I wonder if, if I became as successful, hopefully someday I... I do as well as you. Uh, uh, how do I stay true to myself? How do I not fall into that uh, ego, flashing money, being mean to people maybe that that aren't in the same position? Because I, for a long time, Roger, I was always like, I wonder why Roger's friends with me. Like, why does he take me fishing and stuff? Because I'm not super successful. I'm young. I'm early in my career. I don't have all these things that are status symbols. Who that fucking makes sense? cares? Are we off? No, no, that's no. It's, see, <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet. You can say whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. Which is why Dirk hasn't been on the show yet. For <laughs> sure. I mean, look at the people I associate with. I mean, I, I have always felt that I can get along with almost anybody. Very true. Yeah. And the people that like doing the things that I like to do, we have common interests. I don't care what their economic background is. I don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it doesn't matter to me. 
doesn't matter as long as we enjoy the same things and we're getting along with, with each other that's all I care about well I've learned a lot a ton from you I mean fishing and hunting more so fishing than hunting but uh, just a lot about business practices and, and kind of what you've done and um, you know I listen to you on the phone sometimes and I, I take away a lot from every time we spend uh, together you would say that um, you know because Ryan and I are both still young in our career still trying to hit big goals um, and we're fortunate we work together because we both are like-minded in that way which is why we're doing this today right I gotcha yeah. so well, I want to I touch real quick on uh, his answer about just just being there with the people and I'm a hunter and and that on, honestly is to me is the biggest part of it you're out on a hunt for seven ten days mm -hmm. You're not always going to be successful, but you're always going to remember the experiences. There's going to be highs. Exactly. There's certainly going to be lows. Right. But at the end of the at the end of the trip, you know, like every year I get to go hunting with my dad. You know, that's that's stuff for the memory bank. That successful or not, we had some good laughs. You know, some just good times. And it's interesting, even with my employees, the the ones that are sort of closest to me because they're administrative. I'm, they're my friends. I don't look at them as employees. I mean, they're my friends. And I, they, I, I, they can come to me with personal matters as long as they're not too personal. <laughs> and we can discuss them. And, 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 and we do. And, and it, it, that solidifies the group. It really does. Now, it's saying that it's pretty hard to do a, a, multi, a huge corporation, but with a smaller operation like mine is, I guess you would call it mine is, um, it's very possible to do that. So, and that's kind of solidifies your, your goals. And, you know, we, we have goal planning and so on and so forth. But for the most part, we sort of know where we're going. Is that because of the, of the seniority of your staff? Well, my administrators, there's not one that has been with me less than about 17 years wow so wow. yeah they sort of know where we're going we do make some mistakes you know we're going to we don't always you know if you look forward into the future that you can't nobody predicts the future nobody i guess stock market investors know that um you do the, you, you make your best decisions and i think one of the big mistakes that people in business make is getting too far in debt. That will kill you. Um, I don't know, in some situations, there's no way around it. <laughs> you have to, but. So as a business owner, when you're making decisions like that, are you surrounding yourself with people that are advisors or people that kind of help you make those decisions? Or when you were younger even, did you have mentors or people that kind of help hold you accountable or kept you on track? Uh, yes and no. I, I, I can't tell you I really had that. I've always been an entrepreneur. And um, some people, sometimes people had to reel me in a little bit, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, when you're out of dental school, I know there's a lot of business classes, business education involved in there, but when you're making decisions about 
<clears throat> managing the company's debt and making decisions like that. Did you have outside sources that helped you make those decisions, or did you just kind of learn as you go? I made my, made them myself. Um, one of the questions, or one of the things we talk about a lot on this show, is accountability, right? And uh, I'm the type of person that requires lots of accountability, and I set that up myself. Right. So, from um, uh, having, I have a friend outside of my company in the same industry where we talk every Friday. Right. And if there's something I'm struggling with, then I'll say, "Hey, next week, ask me how I'm doing about this." Right. Gotcha. Or if I'm struggling with a decision we're making, or if I find myself lacking in one aspect of my performance, I have him ask me the next week. So let's say I want to do um, uh, an event. I want to do three events that, that week. And so I'll say, I want to do this three times next week. Will you hold me accountable for that? Or I want to get up and work out one hour every day. Right. Um, uh, and I have little things I do to set myself accountable. Um, but one trend I'm finding, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, is most people that have achieved a high level of success when I ask that question, they kind of say, well, I've never really thought about it. I'm kind of a self-accountable person. Right. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. You know, the buck stops here. Yeah. yeah. Well, but on the other hand, if you hire the right people, give them the right direction, they're going to fulfill your expectations. Do you hold them accountable every <coughs> minute? No, you don't. How are we doing? You know, let's talk about it. Have a meeting once a month or whatever, and see where we're going. We need to tweak this or tweak that or whatever. Um, and we've done that. I mean, I'm also involved in uh, retirement communities, and our operating people, I let them do their thing. We watch what they do because we get spreadsheets, we get this, we get that, all the numbers and so forth, okay? Until I see a trend, which I hope they see too, one way or the other, I'm not too concerned about it. So you just kind of let them go. I yeah, but but it's it's exactly we we watch what they do, but we let them do what they they know what to do. And I believe in in my heart of hearts that the, I, we have very good people here. Uh, you know, and that hasn't always been the case. We struggled with this for 12 years before we got the right people. So, you know, you have to be ready to let people go if it doesn't work, particularly if they're in a high management position where they're making decisions that can cost a lot of money. So do you believe in the hire slowly, fire quickly saying? Uh... I, yes and yes and no. I, I have a I have a one of our chief operating officers that is the opposite way. He's uh, fast to hire and slow to fire, and we've had an issue with that. So um, I think I agree with your uh, stance that we know slow to hire. I this this last year I've hired a coach. Really, and. Uh, uh, it's specific to my industry, and 
he's helped me with my business planning and helped right. me grow my business, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was struggling with uh, one of our employees. Uh, really, really liked her. Uh, pretty good culture fit, very sweet, very nice to everybody. And he was um, kept on asking me on our calls, is this a task that this person would be able to handle? And I would say, I don't think so. So after three or four of those, I finally said, yeah, I'm thinking about letting this person go, but I really don't want to. And then he sent me a really good video uh, by uh, Todd Duncan, who's uh, um, uh, he runs a program called uh, High Trust Selling. Okay. It's for our industry. He does a big seminar called Sales Mastery every year. Um, the coaching program I'm doing with him, and, and he sends out these videos all the time. And, and one of the videos said that as soon as you think you need to let somebody go, you need to let them go. That uh, yeah, that's probably right. And the, and the longer you, you wait to make that decision, the harder it's going to be and the more damage that person can do and the more revenue or whatever goals you have are going to sacrifice from it. But I think you got to be careful because sometimes people will make mistakes and they don't always make mistakes. But if you're somebody in a high management position, you're going to make mistakes. It doesn't It's going to happen. End of story, you know, and you have to... T- you have to take a look and evaluate the good with the bad. It's just really a fireable offense, or isn't it? Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? So I think you need to evaluate that, and I, and I, I sort of disagree with that statement. Well, and um, he, uh, when when we did, when we when I did let that person go, um, and we started looking at hiring new per- people. He goes, okay, let me see your job description. And so I really had to look myself in the mirror and say, did I set that person up for success, right? Mm-hmm. And so we recently hired a new person for that position and, and came up with a very detailed job description that she has. And um, uh, we have a set way we like her to be organized. We have everything down to how she we want her greeting our clients when they walk in. We have all that kind of set up. So you have a business platform that you're operating off of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And okay. she has and this person has lots of freedom in that position. It's not okay. micromanaged. So, so she all. understands that platform. Yeah. Okay. Where um, maybe we didn't do a good a job of that the first okay. time around. But uh, uh, that, that that's I think that's a, a a problem that a lot of business owners make is they don't set the goals and they don't have a platform a business platform from which they're operating and with our management company with our tegan um we do have that this is our platform this is what we can do this is what we have to do how we have to do it and we've turned down business because we realized that um this was beyond our scope with the with the talent that we have right now and we're better off doing that than accepting business that's beyond our our scope at this particular point they like our platform we're not geared for it so you have to make that balance we turned down oh gosh it was a six six buildings 600 600 rooms altogether or something like that 
they love their platform, and we looked at our ability to perform, and said, we can't do this right now. We're gonna, well, we'd love to have your business, but we can't, we can't fulfill the obligations we feel we need to perform based on our current ability to do it. We love the platform, but we're not built into that to take on twice what we're doing right now. And that's one of the problems that businesses face is that growing too fast is a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be a good example. So I'm excited. Uh, our, I think it's going to be our next podcast. Um, I have two directors um, coming in, and they're friends uh, outside of work. And one is a director for uh, skilled nursing, and one is a director for assisted uh, living. Mm-hmm. Um, both very high level at their job. And in my opinion, we'll find out when they're on, but two 100% different management styles. And I really like the skilled and assisted uh, platforms to talk about business and personal development because of the different levels of management and the different teams that are involved, right? Right. Everyone down from the um, uh, the nurses, the is, uh, CNAs, yeah. all the way up to uh, the nurse managers, and all the way up to the directors and admissions. And so, uh, you know, my wife's in that industry, so we <coughs> compare notes a lot about management styles and personal development. So I'm really excited to have both of them on to kind of see, because not one management style wins out over another one, but uh, these, these two individuals have done both of them very, very well with two completely different styles. So you'll have to listen to that one. I would like to. Um, that should be interesting. Uh, we have some different styles as well. Um, if you're an operations person, you're going to be looking at detail. If you're a big person, a big picture person, you're not going to be looking at detail. So you have two literally different management styles if you look at it. And you have to take a look at where they cross. You know, does do you have the right number of forks and spoons and knives, or is it more important that you look like you do? You see what I'm saying? I think so. Yeah. So it's and at the end of the day, it's performance, and it's your clients that drive what you do. And it, once you lose sight of that then you're lost. Particularly if you're in the service business, which we are. Mm-hmm. Medical, pretty much all the way. Yeah. But if you're, even if you're in a uh, subway business, I'm not, I don't mean to use that like as subway a cliche, sandwiches? but it's, uh, if, you're, if you're selling sandwiches, you're still in the service business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What business model works here for the client walking through the door? How do they perceive how you are? It's huge in the medical business, huge. Particularly in businesses where it's not a necessity. If you, you know, if you have a heart attack, it's a necessity. 
you got a toothache is probably a necessity. It's more emotional too, right? Yeah, if you go to the dentist because your wife took you by the ear and drug you in there, that's not a necessity. <laughs> and so your perception of how you're treated is entirely different. Do you think that with, with that in mind, in the medical field, in, with a non-necessity need, are those people, are those clients or patients more likely to, to have uh, a wall up because they feel like they're being sold something they don't need? Uh, I, don't, I don't really think so. I don't think so. I know that in, 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 with the internists and the family practitioners, they're going to push for tests so that they can be sure that certain things aren't a problem. Sure. And I think that could be perceived by the patient as being over the top. Um, In, in my field, in the dental field, um, it sort of is what it is. It's, it's not that difficult. So here's what I see. This is what I think we can do. You think it over. For the most part, our, our profession is elective. I'm not gonna, you're not going to necessarily die from a dental infection. You might from a heart attack. So. Or bad breath. Hmm? Or bad breath. I could die from some people's bad breath. <laughs> bad breath yeah. will kill you off. You, yeah. you may be socially inept. It may affect your entire life. <laughs> you may wind up in a room by yourself. It's like really bad acne that you don't know you have. <laughs> <laughs> it's called halitosis, right? <laughs> so, Roger, we're sitting in one of the most amazing... Not necessarily wildlife museums, but one of the most amazing museums I've ever been in. And, and uh, I've known you for a long time. I, I, know, I knew you before you had that room. Right. And I never wanted to bother you with a million questions. Because I'm like, I'm sure everybody asks Roger, what's his favorite animal? Uh, how long did it take you? Tell me about this one. So I've never talked to you about it because I figured if you wanted to talk about it, you would brought it up. But now that I got you on the podcast, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And Ryan probably has more than I do. Is that okay? All right. No problem. So what in the hell motivated you to build this? Okay. When I was a teenager, trophy rooms were a big deal. Hunting, big game hunting was a big deal. Jack O'Connor. Oh, yeah. All these people. And I'm going like, at some point in time, this is where we want to be. And my parents were not outdoors people at all. And I had to literally convince them to say, look, take a look around you. Look what's out here. It's, we, I grew up in suburbia. I didn't have access to wild stuff unless somebody took me to it, right? And we finally moved to a, uh, a house on a dirt road that had a um, flooded pit gravel 
place that had small bass and sunfish and carp and all that stuff in it. So, I mean, it was so close I could walk down the road and do it and fish. And they could have cared less. I mean, that that was where it all started, you know. And I guess maybe started before that, but I had I, mean, I don't know where it came from. I mean, it just was in me somewhere. And I decided when I was a teenager, I said, I'm 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 going to do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt out over, all over the world, and I'm going to be an advocate for conservation. And so far, that's what I've done. At what point did you decide that you wanted to start collecting uh, taxidermy? Uh, it's, well, I'd say then, back then probably, but uh, I had, didn't have the means to do it. Um, and it was part of it was my adventurous nature, so to speak, um, just to get out there and do stuff and be involved and go camping and hiking and sleep in a tent that's halfway down the mountain and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's hard to explain. I, I, I really don't believe that I had a uh, motivation to, to start collecting stuff. Mm -hmm. It just sort of happened, you know. What was your, uh, in this museum, do you know which animal was your first animal? Yeah, my first animal. Yeah, I probably do. Um, there's probably that doll sheep that's sitting behind you to the left. No way. That was, yeah. your, that was your first one? Yeah. How long ago was that? 1986 or 7. Let me uh, I'm gonna adjust the camera real quick to flash out that guy real quick. We had some fancy plans to take some pictures ahead of time. Um, if people want to see uh, pictures of this, they can go to your website, correct? Yes. And what's that website? It's uh, Wendell Museum of Animal Conservation com. Okay. Uh, and Roger has lots of pictures of the museum there. But, uh, that's wild that that was your first. Yeah. I, I would thought you were going to say like one a black tailed deer. Or, yeah, one of the deer in here or something. I, you know, I, I really wasn't involved in big game hunting until about that time. And I did some big game hunting. Mostly it was bird hunting. Yeah. What, I, I uh, really didn't, hadn't hunted much big game at that point. I mean, part of it was I was busy working. I didn't have time. Yeah, I shot some small deer and stuff like that, but it wasn't, you know, for as far as making a effort to do some serious collection, I didn't. When your collection got to a certain size, did did you start to look at this and go, we could probably use this for conservation purposes? Yeah, because my, my feeling is, is that people really don't understand that hunting seems like a contradiction, but hunting preserves animals. Well, hunters give, I mean, the fees uh, yeah, and whatnot exactly. we pay, and, it, it, and, it, it, and, it grows and, wildlife. Uh, Preservation animals, people, animals, people die. Okay, they, they, they're born and they die. So we're not trying to preserve the animals as much as we are preserving the habitat hmm. Absolutely. for these animals. Absolutely. Which allows them to have their life cycle. 
Does that make sense? Well, yeah. elk were yeah. elk yeah. were nearly yeah. extinct there for a while and in so, North America. And so you take a look at foundations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited. What they have been impressing is the preservation or conservation of habitat, much more so than have been conservation of the actual animals. Well, Pheasants Forever, yeah. their mission statement Same is a ha habitat organization. Oh, totally, totally. And any, anything, any organization that's worth the salt is looking to preserve that. And I think as a, as a um, sort of conservationist, uh, we need to take a look at uh, other countries which uh, have uh, an abundance of animals is how they're going to preserve the habitat and keep their populations. And keep them public. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. Because I don't think people realize <clears throat> how much land we own here. It's ours, right? You go to um, England, how much public land hunting do they have there? None, or very little. Very little, right? Yeah. Um, and it's all paid hunting and, and private land. Um, and I don't think people, I, I didn't realize that until I got into hunting and conservation, that just how much public lands there are. And we have some awesome hunting shows in this country. One we like is called The Meat Eater. Have you ever seen that one with Steven Ranella? No, I know the guy. He's a, he's a true badass, and most all of his hunts are public land hunting. And mm -hmm. I think it's the most realistic hunting show. Um, I would say his success rate on the show is 25%. Well, it's probably higher than that, but it's it's his show is not filmed directly based on, you know, killing an animal or harvesting an animal. You know, it's 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 about the hunt itself and a lot about the habitat, a lot about yeah, biology. Yeah, he he yeah, he I mean, he's a super knowledgeable guy as about as the biology. Uh, exactly. Yeah. No, you know, and that's exactly where it should be. Mm -hmm. Okay, true. Yeah. So that's one question I had lot of animals in here a lot of hunts you've went on um you know i've i've hunted elk since i was about uh trying to think the first year my dad took me i was in i was in my teens but you don't get one every year you don't not even close and so what uh have you been on some some big exotic hunts where you put in a lot of hard effort and work and money and it just doesn't pan out. 145 days before I shot a stone sheep. 145 Are days. Are you picking him up? Uh, for, 45 days. 45 days. Yeah. Before you, you got a stone sheep? Yeah. In one four consecutive? Different four different hunts. Mm -hmm. And where were those hunts at? Northern British Columbia, southern Yukon. So, so what's I mean, it like walking away from a hunt like that? You know. It's not an inexpensive we, no, ordeal. No, it's not. And it's a lot more expensive now. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I think you have to go into it with the idea that it's hunting. And you're going to have the, the plus and you're going to have the minuses. You know? So, it is what it is. You pay your money. But when you walk away, are you disappointed? You know, I used to be at one point in time, but I'm not anymore. 
Um, I, I, I understand if I go to a certain area to hunt a certain animal, um, I might be successful and I might not be. That's called hunting. Yeah. What's important is the experience. So speaking of experiences, I've been trying to hold back the excitement for the trip that you invited me on because it's not for... Oh, for a Jurassic Lake? It's not for 16 months. Yeah, no, it'll be, <laughs> be a while. Uh, so let's talk about Jurassic Lake. Go ahead. I'll be happy to talk about it. So Jurassic Lake is located in Patagonia. Yes, southern Patagonia. And um, it's a lake that was. You can test I'll test me here. See how much. I, see how knowledgeable. It's uh, it? Lago Strobel. Yeah, Lago Strobel is the name of the lake. The yeah. Jurassic Lake's the nickname. It's yeah, sort of a nickname. The name of the lodge. And a couple seen. of the guys, a couple guys found it in the late '80s. Uh, yeah. Planted with. Yeah, rainbow <laughs> trout that trickled down into that lake. So what they weren't transplanted i thought they were from uh, like a california strain yeah they're yeah well they're i, I don't know where they came from but um they were I, I, all trout in argentina has been planted at some point in time yes if you want ryan you can go do you can duplicate that screen so, so you can do screen capture if you want um if you want to pull up pictures if you can pull up the website um you might recognize somebody's on the website uh so there's no predators for these fish. No. And these fish got massive. Well, the, yeah, the, the lake uh, doesn't have any minnows or anything that they, they're scuds and they're um, very small bugs that they eat. There's four or five different kinds in there and very prolific. And so that's what they, that's what they feed on. So they don't have any natural predators. So how big a trout are we talking? Uh, well, we got them um, up to 22, 23 pounds. The average is probably 6 to 12 pounds. I think it's, it's uh, well, there's a map of it. Um. Go go back. You want me to? Yeah, go go back to the your initial search there. And uh, uh, if you look at the the pictures of these fish, they're they're very deep. They're like sort of what we call footballs. Fat, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's um, uh, the. Uh oh. I think it's a Jurassic, the, yeah, try that one. Yeah, I think this is it. This is the, the guide service, right? Is this look right? Oh, that's, yep. is that it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so scroll down. So there's some pictures of them. And when, I, when we fly into this place, am I going to feel like we're out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will. Because you used to have to fly in. What what? Where do we fly into the main city? And I Virginia? can't remember the little tit, little little city that was there um, on the Atlantic coast. And then we'd pick up a. Look at that guy. We pick up a uh, charter flight from there. It used to be you have to drive into it. Thirteen hours. Did you do that? Did you no, do that? we we flew. 
that's the way to go. You, you lose a day both ways, otherwise. Uh, well, I'm stoked. I'm excited not only for the trip, but to get to go with you and, and some of our other friends. Oh, yeah, we're, we're going to have a great time in this from, you know, you can, you can fish as much as you want to. And we're fly fishing, right? Yeah, we're fly fishing. Um, when I went there, I probably had a high of maybe 60 fish a day. Some guys had 250 fish Jeez. a day. Yeah. Just because they fished all day. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's the, it's the best rainbow trout fishing on the planet. Without a doubt, bar none, period. So, uh, this is a museum, private museum. Yes. Uh, you host lots of events here. We do. You've allowed me to host a ton of events here. We even had my wife's baby shower here. <laughs> 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 Which uh, my parents still won't let me forget. Um, uh, that was a great party, though. Uh, but uh, have you ever run into... You know, I guess every time I have a large event here, there's somebody that is taken way back by this. And they have a, a emotional reaction that's not a positive one. Really? Um, I think you would do that with any any sort of tactic. Yeah, usually you can, well, you can overcome that. So how do you overcome that with somebody? We talk to them about what the, the conservation efforts, you know, about the difference between conservation and preservation. So can we can we talk about a specific animal in here? Um, name one. Uh, the elephant back there. How do you explain to, to somebody that isn't a hunter, that doesn't know a lot about conservation, why it's okay to go... Um, hunt elephants in Africa? The main reason is because the money that c comes from hunting elephants goes into conservation efforts to preserve the habitat that they need to survive. So are in the parts of Africa where there's legal hunting for elephants, has the populations improved? Over the years, well, yeah, it has. The, 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 there's there's a lot of elephants. There's not a lot of habitat. Figure it out. I mean, an, av uh, an elephant's a huge animal, and they require a lot of food and a lot of water, and sometimes the two are miles and miles apart. So, where does the effort? to conserve their habitat. What kind of organizations do the different countries in Africa have that are about habitat preservation? I mean, I guess my point is, is it like it is here? Uh, well, I think you're, you've asked about three different questions, but um, one, one is, is that in, in, you're, you're looking at an economic situation in Africa, which is different than here, okay? Um, people in Africa are looking at their own self-preservation. And so if you can provide them money to show them that they can, they can, they can make conservation efforts to preserve the big game, their, uh, uh, their, their economic situation, for example, money coming in from professional hunting will increase, and it has. And uh, that's particularly true in, so in Zimbabwe. Um, 
you know, the, the money that comes in from professional hunting, a lot of that goes into the communities, is it has stemmed uh, poaching efforts and so on and so forth to the point where poachers are now considered criminals, where before they were collectors and giving them back to the family, okay? So... How bad is poaching in Zimbabwe? Uh, right now, I don't know. I know, I know in uh, West Africa, it's really bad. It has been for a long time. Um, they'll sell the meat, the, the pygmies, for example, will sell the meat to the wood companies, the, the lumberers in there, for a fantastic price because they can't get meat to come in there. So they kill the dikers and they kill the, the small wild animals to feed, to sell them to the lumber companies, okay? So that's still a problem. Still, and plus, the overharvest of, of, of uh, hardwood trees is still a problem there. That may not resolve itself in a long time. I don't know. But as far as elephants are concerned, um, their habitat has been reduced. Any way you can increase the no, and so any way we can you can increase the habitat preservation will go a long way to preserve the population of the animals. This has not happened because of the introduction of agriculture into the areas that the elephant live in. So the elephants are now faced with harvesting what they need to eat out of the farmer's fields. You have a conflict here. Yeah, right away. Yeah. So there's some organizations in our country that work towards conservation in other countries, correct? That's correct. The one that... Uh, we go to every couple of years or uh, years. Safari Club International, yes. Safari Club International. And how, uh, uh, you've been a member, lifetime member with them, right, for a long time? Yes. And uh, how big of an impact do they have? Because when I go there, it seems like a lot of money is being raised. They raise a lot of money, and they're in involved in the um, political structure of determination of harvestability of animals in various countries. Because it seems like, especially in Zimbabwe and countries in Africa, that's where the, the habitat conservation has to start, is with a lot of the political aspects, right? Absolutely. Like poaching. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and it's still a big problem. I mean, it was when I started hunting there, and it still is. Um, switch gears a little bit. Um, for the people that are listening to this show that aren't um, knowledgeable about hunting, explain um, high wire, uh, high fence, um, high wire, this isn't a circus, high fence, well, yeah, high okay. fence hunting. You, you're talking about um, hunting that's done within confined area, and that runs a gamut of circling in a population so they can't leave to 
uh, breeding a population that is in a confined area. And a lot of that's evident in South Africa, for example, and there's a lot of species there that would not exist today would that not be the case. And we're not talking about 50 square feet, we're talking about thousands of acres. What are some, can you give an example of a species? Uh, yeah, black, uh, the white rhino would be a good example, yeah. huge example of that. Um, black wildebeest would be another one. Red lechway would be another one. Was, I could go on. It's, 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 those, peop those animals would not exist if it were not for those efforts. And why is that? Is it because of the high fence? The high fence property is is private land. Yeah, it's all private land. I'm talking. We're not talking about South Africa. Okay, yeah. I want to make that clear. Sure. Okay. That's different than high fence in Texas. Yeah, high fence in Texas is sort of the same thing. Um, you, you know, Texas land is is not known by acres. It's known by square miles. So, um, yeah, it's sort of the same thing. But there's, you know, there's, I, I can, what I'm trying to think, there's uh, no guy, um, there's certain types of oryx that would not exist today if it weren't for those. Pure David there is a really good example. Pure David there came out of China. Pure David was a priest, David, okay, back in the 1600s. And he went to China and he saw these deer being killed for their meat and saw that they were not going to survive, that they would be wiped out. So he took 12 of them, he transported them to England. And they developed a population of pure David deer there. And so it was the only population because they wiped out the population of India. And then eventually uh, they were transported to various other places, one being Argentina where the only free-ranging population of Pure David Deer exists today. Wow. What part of Argentina, what region? Patagonia, out of Bariloche. So you think we might see some on our trip? Hmm? You think we might see some on our trip? Well, uh, no, because we're going to be way south of that. Dang it. Yeah, dang it. Yeah. But that's for the only place that free-range. And you have a Pure David I Deer do, here. Yeah. And where, where was that harvested? Right over here next to the alligator. Well, I know. <laughs> I know. Where, to, where did you harvest? Where did you hunt that? Argentina. In Argentina. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good example of how that works. The, the, this species would not exist today <coughs> were it not for that effort. So uh, three hundred years ago. Wow. Three hundred years. Yeah. Ago. Um, before Ryan jumps in here, because I know he's chomping on the bit, no. he's got lots of questions. He's been asking me all week. Back to high fence hunting, yes, because that's a very hot topic right now in the hunting community. Right. So, if I understand you correctly, that high fence hunting has directly impacted animal conservation, and, and with with certain species. No, species. like I described before, yeah. So your point is that this is a, a discriminatory issue with certain populations. Yeah, my, my point is, is is there's a lot of opinions on it, and I'm, I don't fully understand. I know that um, 
if I'm going to go to SCI, I'm going to book a trip to Africa. I don't necessarily want to book a high fence hunt trip. I, want I to don't book a, disagree a, with a that. Wild, I, want a wild, I want to hunt wild animals right. in a wild place. Right. I don't want to have my um, kudu picked out for me. All right, right. But, but in the other sense, I mean, I, we did a high fence, quote unquote, hunt in southern Zimbabwe in 2005 or something like that. Now, if you want to consider three million acres a high fence hunt, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> that's not a high fence hunt, in my opinion. What that's doing is keeping the poachers out. Gotcha. Okay. So, is there two forms of high fence hunting? Yeah, I think you can you can you can take it down to releasing a predator in a fifty-acre or less space, and that's high fence hunting. Well, at, at the at the other extreme, okay, it's not that's not fair in my opinion, and I don't like that. Same with a lot of um, uh, deer in our country, right? There's high fence hunting for deer in our country where they have these genetically there's genetic bred yes. monster there deer. Is. They're big. They're genetically they're the the the, the big. Buck deer are, you know, there's a quarter million dollar price on their head, and they're breeding like crazy, and they make all these crazy looking deer. I don't like that. It is what it is. I just don't. Yeah. I'll never hunt one of those, and I'll, that is what it is. I've I, always wanted to ask that question, but I didn't want to offend you. Yeah, you're not offending me. I just, I'm just, just saying this. I'm just quoting my opinion. Yeah. I don't care for that. Yeah, I don't care but for. But there it are people that like that. And, and in that regard, I don't see anything wrong with that. These be, these these deer are being raised like cattle to be harvested. Would I want to do it? No. Yeah. I think that it, that is really important because everything in here is a trophy, but it's a wild trophy. Yes. And I think everything there's a big here difference. has been. Harvested in, in in wild conditions. Yeah. Yes. What with 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 a success rate that I think a lot of people don't understand that are not hunters, right? What would you say your if you had to give an average success rate of all your hunts? What do you think? Twenty percent. Twenty percent. That's lower than I would have said, and, and my number was low. And there's a lot of animals in here. That's a lot of days spent in the field. I mean, a lot, lot of days, a lot of miserable yeah. conditions. Yeah, a lot of times, a lot of unsuccessful hunts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Are they meaningful? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you, could could you pick out a favorite hunt? Oh wow! I, I know that's got to be a tough one. Know, I ask it. I'm, I get asked this question a lot, and it's all, they're all so different. I would say, if I were to pick out one, it would be my first trip to Africa in the Wulangba Valley in, in, uh, in Zambia because there were so many... And that's southern Africa, right? South Africa? Uh, uh, Zambia. Zambia is? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, sort of... It's north of... Uh, just north of uh, Zimbabwe. Okay. It used to be Rhodesia, which they, and they divided it into Zambia and Zimbabwe. Yeah. But, you know, I, and the only reason for saying that would be that... Um, it was one of my first experiences. It was my first experience in Africa. And such a diversity 
of animals and it was it was it was cute. It was really great experience. Um, I love mountain hunting, uh, all sheep hunting. Totally different experience. A lot of patience, a lot of waiting, a lot of glassing, a lot of hiking, a lot of climbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a totally different experience. So to say to pin myself on one thing, yeah, be tough. It's tough. But if I were if I were gonna say, you know, that would be. Maybe the, the coolest experience I've experienced, that first hunt was, and I've been to Africa several times since then, and it was nothing like that. So, it's a great experience. So, these hunts, I know they're uh, very demanding physically. Can be. So, going through, you know, your, your teenage years and whatnot, were you always physically active? And yeah, then, I was a wrestler then, in high school and college, and... And so you, you kept up the training oh, yeah. in order I to be in shape. physically active. So, yeah, I mean, particularly mountain hunting. But people ask me what the most difficult hunts are. What do you think they are? Turkey. No. Nada. Uh, you're close, though. There's a bird. <laughs> um, what about... Um, the uh, uh, don't uh, don't tell me the um, chucker chucker in Alaska, thing. the ones that There's no, the ones that roost in trees. Hunt. They don't have chuckers in Alaska, but chucker hunting is right here. Here, yeah. Steve Vernella on his latest episode of the podcast, he does hunt chucker. No, not chucker the, the, grouse. Yeah, the grouse. the sooty the sooty the sooty no. grouse and there, there's there's up in Alaska like southeast Alaska like out of oh, Juneau. Maybe southeast, yeah. it, but uh, they the, the toughest hunt you'll ever do is chucker hunt here. Yeah, especially I'll if take you, you over to Grand Run and hunt here three days and you'll sleep for four days. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I went the I went chucker hunting with Dirk. Yeah, and we'll eventually have Dirk on, but <clears throat> Dirk's a crazy, crazy man. He is. Oh my goodness! And uh, <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell a really quick story about myself. <laughs> this hunting story is anything like your hunting stories, but uh, he wanted to go trucker hunting, and uh, uh, so he said, "Meet me um, at like Biggs Junction or something, or meet me in Hermiston." Yeah. So I wake up at three, I hit the road, um, and I'm just having like pain in my kidneys. And so I stop and get a water and a rock star, and I get to about um, Troutdale. And I'm just nauseous, and my side's killing me, and I'm sweating. Oh. And I'm like, I'm just going to keep going. And then I pull over at Cascade Locks, and I'm like, fuck, I need to go to the hospital. And so I pull up my phone, and I can go back to Gresham, or I can go to Hood River. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to Hood River. So I go to Hood River, pull in. At this point, I'm like convulsing, bent over. And uh, they get me right in. I'm throwing up all over the place. Uh, and uh, so they give me morphine, calm me down. And had a 10-millimeter kidney stone. And uh, so they gave me the morphine, and I felt great, took a little nap. And then they came, and, and uh, the the nurse had a syringe. She's like, we're going to give you some more painkillers. And I said, well, what is that? 
She goes, it's still loaded. And I said, if I take that, am I going to be able to drive? She goes, no, your wife's going to have to come pick you up. And I said, I don't want it. I feel fine. <clears throat> so then an hour and a half goes by. Uh, meanwhile, Wilbur is in my truck tearing it apart. She's been in there for like three hours. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't even think to put him in the kennel in the back. I just, I was in so much pain, I just left him in the truck. And, uh, and so I felt great. And uh, I'm like, I'm going to go chucker hunting. And the nurse, and the nurse goes, oh, you're going chucker hunting. She's like, if you get some, bring one by. I'll have chuckers. I said, okay, you got it. And so I felt like a million dollars. I just felt great. I felt rested. You had, a little had to lie, die louder. You felt a lot better. Yeah, I wouldn't have been going trucker hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called Dirk, and I'm like, I'm coming. And I had to stop by the emergency room. And, and you think Dirk would take it easy on me? No. Fuck no. <laughs> we were going up and down these steep uh, uh, canyons, up and down, up and down. And uh, I hadn't done a lot of trucker hunting. Neither had Wilbur. Mm. which um, bird hunting is my favorite because I think because of the dogs. But Wilbur's so um, passionate about hunting and so enthusiastic that it scared the crap out of him because he'd catch wind of a bird and start running, and we're on 30-foot, 40-foot cliffs. But he did fine. He scared the crap out of me a couple times, got stuck a couple times. And helped, helped Couldn't figure out how to get back. Yeah, he made it, he made it work, but... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, after the first quarter mile, Dirk's gone. He's like three ridges over. So uh, Wilbur and I hunt out, and uh, I think we got, got a couple birds. And and then I don't know what it was. I think it was – are there grouse out there? Yeah, there's some blue grouse. I think there was some blue grouse. I could barely see something moving on top of the hill, and Wilbur took off. And we're about a mile from the truck. So Wilbur took off, and by the time I climbed all the way up there, he was gone. So I, I look for him for like 45 minutes, can't find him. So I go, well, I'm going to go back and get the truck and drive the road. And so I hike all the way back. At this point, I'm dead. I mean, I just yeah. had morphine and the kidney stone. I was just, <laughs> I was toast. I could barely <laughs> walk in the... <laughs> and I, I walk up to my truck, and I look, and there's Wilbur sitting in the shade of my tailgate. Perfect. Yeah, so he found a mile. He found his way back to the truck. He said, screw Cody. I'm going to go back to the truck. Perfect. Um, so we covered a lot. Uh, Chucker hunting is by far, by far, the most physically demanding upland sport that you can think of. I but they're short hunts, though, right? They're like a half a day, three quarters of well, a day. Well, I used to hunt over the Grand Ronde River, and we would hike from the Grand Ronde uphill 2,000 feet and hunt our way back down. And that means you're going laterally across hill, steep hills, really um, difficult terrain. Well, just so people that don't And then if you haven't got your limit, you go back up and you do it again. Well, and for people that don't chucker hunt, don't know much about hunting, when you say steep, I mean, it's steep where if you slip and you're fall, you die. You're going from roughly right? sea level to 2,500 feet, and you're hiking straight uphill. Yeah, on rock, on rocky. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then you work your way back down laterally, back and forth and back and forth in very steep, difficult terrain. And... 
What that means is blisters on your feet, busted, you know, worn out ankles, screwed up knees, and then if you haven't shot what you want to shot, you go back up and you do it again. And it's not like your dog flushes a chucker and you get a shoot at it. I mean, yeah, you get you get to shoot at it. It might go down 500 feet below yeah. you. Yeah, or maybe you don't even realize what's going on because your dog's one ridge over and you're barely hanging on to the it, side. Of it, you. Believe me, I've hunted all over the world. I've done everything. I've sheep hunted, which is considered very difficult hunting. Chucker hunting is the most difficult. All right, let's talk about um, uh, extreme climates. Since sure, I can do that. Uh, can I guess Which degree range you want to go into? <laughs> so can I pick the most extreme? Yeah. Uh, muskox. Uh, you're not extreme enough. Have a stab, Brian. Okay. How about polar bears? Yeah, I was going to say the polar bear is my next guess. So polar bears are part of the Marine Mammal uh, Protection Act, correct? That's correct. And when did that go into place? Uh, about 1969, 70, somewhere way back there. So when did you get your polar bear? 1997. So how does that work? Uh, they released uh, permits in certain areas in the Arctic that you could hunt them. Do they still do that, or was that a one-time deal? No, it's deal? gone now. It was a three-year three window, and it's over now. And was it a lottery system? I mean, it seems no, like everybody... No, lottery. It, it just it was that three-year window in those certain areas where there was a, they determined the population was right. Um to apply for a permit, you had to put $1,000 in to research in Russia for polar bear populations, believe it or not. And So hold on a second. No, hold on what? So, <laughs> uh, so just so people understand, so this was in Russia. No, this, no, we had to give $1,000 for research in Russia. We didn't hunt in Russia. We okay. hunted in Canada. Why did Russia get money for you? Well, in Canada? yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm still haven't figured that one out. It's, it's Trump's fault. So did they <laughs> open that? Did they open that hunt up for that three-year period because there was a population problem? There was a population. They figured they could harvest. Yes. So you can have a species that's endangered, and you can have a certain area where that species is where they're overpopulated. That's what they, yeah, okay, okay. And people no, don't realize I'm that, generally, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I just think it's important to understand, especially with some of the um, African animals here, is, is people go, oh, that's on the endangered species list, or, oh, why would somebody want to hunt that? Because there are areas where they need hunters to come in. That's correct. correct? To preserve the, the, that, that's the ab yeah, absolutely. The, uh, species. Absolutely. They need to control the populations. So they can produce, yeah, exactly. So how cold was it? 50 below. Oof. Where'd you get your muskox eggs? Uh, mu mu well, that was in Northwest Territories. It was only 40 below. I was only off by 10 degrees. Not a big deal. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> now, how about some... Uh, some Have you ever tried taking a pee when it's 50 below oh zero? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> So how about how about extreme heat? Uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the rainforest. I was in uh, southern Cameroon hunting uh, bongo. Oh, that was miserable. What's Holy bongo? Crap. 
That was terrible. What, what's bongo? Bongo is an antelope. Lives in the rainforest in Africa. Really? Do you have one here? Yeah. That's greedy. Hanging one of the roses. Full mounted right over there. You'll have to show me after. Mm. Oh, I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Little guy. I'd say the two animals that I think are the most, you know, people go, what? Is the elephant followed by the giraffe. For whatever reason, people really get. Giraffe? Yeah, people really have been. Definitely. Freaked out by the giraffe. I can't Why? believe there's a giraffe in here. Just, they they just don't understand. Well, the ass is on the other side of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great example. Um, you know, I've had uh, events here where everyone's like, I'm okay with everything but the giraffe. So tell me about giraffe hunting. And, and when I go to SCI, I don't see a lot of guides for giraffes. All right. Let me just put it this way. Giraffe hunting is not difficult, but it can be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this giraffe, we shot, I don't know, 3 o'clock one afternoon and uh, followed it for five, six hours, Oof. gave up. Came back to the next day, followed it again. Finally, finally took it down. The um, trackers went back to get the skinners. Uh, my partner and I skinned half the giraffe out before they came back to us because they couldn't find us. And um, giraffes are. They're not necessarily hard to find. They are hard to get up too close and get a, and get a good shot. They're not what I would call a uh, difficult animal to hunt. They're difficult animal to uh, harvest. Interesting. Yeah. Um, who is your partner on that hunt? Um, Mr. Bill Baumgartner. Oh, God. Um, can we talk about something I never asked you about because I didn't feel it was any of my business, uh, but the other partner of yours that, that helped um, uh, hunt a lot of these animals in here? Oh, uh, Jerry Davis? Yeah. yeah. Would you mind talking about that a little I bit? I've never heard the story. Jerry died in um, eastern Siberia, 2001, August 11th, one month before 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys were together? Yes. And what were you hunting? We were hunting a Siberian snow sheep. Siberian snow sheep. Do you have one here? Yes, I do. I actually have two. Was it two? Did you get one that, that trip? Yeah, but I did. And he died very shortly. Uh, I have pictures of him and uh, he and him myself about an hour before he died. I've seen that picture. Yeah. I do know. I do know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then um, we 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 harvested the animal, and we we were on a we. What happened was is that going back a little bit. How long you want to go with this? I as can, long as you want. Okay. Um, we were we we left Portland 
and he told me he was having chest pain. And I'm going like, what kind of chest pain? Well, it's all this stuff, this, uh, this gastric reflux disease I've got and this and that. And I said, well, you're telling me this and we're going to some of the remotest parts of the world anywhere. There is no medical attention. So we get to Moscow, and he's still having issues and this and that, and we fly up to uh, Petrofavl, no, Norilsk, to hunt the uh, Siberian snow sheep, Pervlostov snow sheep, and uh, that requires a helicopter trip in to an area which is um, basically a bunch of plateaus extremely steep uh, canyons. So you get on one plateau, you're there. You're not going anyplace else, okay? And they're transported by rivers and so forth. Okay, so we get there to Norilsk. He has a, uh, an issue. He can't, can't walk. He can't, he's not feeling good. So we sort of do our walk and he kind of and It's improves. related to the chest pain? Yes. And we get back to our hotel, and he's feeling okay. We fly out a day or two later and um, land on a plateau. So we have our little Russian entourage, and we're laying out the camp, and we go like, okay, let's just walk off the ridge and see if we see anything. I wasn't even going to take a gun with me. Sure enough, we get up there, here's these four snow sheep in the distance. And so we start to stalk them, you know, obviously shooters, and long story short, we shot two of them. Our hunt was done. Done. <laughs> That's crazy. It doesn't <laughs> happen like there. that. Ten days later, we were still there. Why? Because... They couldn't come in to get us because of weather issues and so this and that. We're in the Arctic, okay? What's your camp like for 10 days in the Arctic? Well, it's a, it's a tent camp, okay? We're in a tent camp. And finally, um, another helicopter came in. There was a, a guy from California. He was, a, he was a pediatric neurologist. He was Iranian. And so we got to talking, and he, he flew in at about nine o'clock at night. And during that 10 day period, um, Jerry literally never got out of his tent. And I, I walked that whole plateau. I knew where every sheep in the freaking area was, okay? I says, you want a sheep? Go over there, take your helicopter, go over there, take a look. There's one shooter in there at least. What I suggest you do you shoot that animal, come back here, we'll pack our shit up and get out of here, okay? He does that, goes over, bang, shoots that, shoots a decent sheep, not, not as good as the one we got, but nice, okay? Fly back, comes back over, pick up our stuff, fly out. We're flying for a couple hours, I guess, the helicopter, down he goes in the river valley. In the helicopter. In the helicopter. 
and stop doing it. It's like, yeah, it's like four o'clock in the morning, but you know, in August, it's bright daylight. So we go down there, and this guy opens the back of a helicopter up and goes to the back, and he gets a, a couple of uh, fishing rods out. And he goes like, you so hunt? the helicopter went down? Yes. You, I thought he went, I this thought is, Jerry No, this is the captain of the helicopter. He goes back and grabs his fishing rods and leaves us there getting eaten by mosquitoes. <laughs> and you like to hunt them. I like to fish. <laughs> so he goes out and he's throwing spoons and crap in the river there and collects a couple uh, Arctic char, comes back, and he's, you know, dicking around with those Arctic char. And we're getting chewed by mosquitoes. And I said, hey, out we go now. Packs us up. We fly back into Norris. We land in the helicopter base there. Here comes the military. You have permits to hunt here? Uh-oh. Yeah. Here they are. Not good. Maybe not good. They're signed by the Ministry of... Uh, and we had what is our equivalent of our interior secretary with us, okay? Everything, everything in Russia is run by the, the mafia. You have to understand that, okay? This guy shows up, takes our guys, our interpreters and our guys over, and they're starting to interrogate, you know, to uh, interrogate them. So hold on a second. So they pull who away to interrogate? They are our, our interpreters. Okay. And the interpreters you hired through the guide service that you were on? Yeah. Yeah. So we uh, us and the other guy from, you know, Jerry and me and the guy from uh, L.A., okay? We don't know what the hell's going on. This finally, this uh, limo shows up, a black limo, and this guy gets out and he's all dressed up in his military uniform. He's probably 35 and he's got a gal sitting next to him. He's blonde. He's all decked <laughs> out in these, uh, these furs and shit. And I'm going to tell you, in the Rilsk, there are no paved roads. This vehicle did not have a spot of dirt on it. And behind him was a caravan of about three trucks with military guys with machine guns. And as soon as these guys saw these guys arrive, they were like, oh, shit. So who was he? The head frickin' mafia guy, okay? <laughs> and you're just like, I want to like, get out of here. Get out of here. He comes to us and he goes like, you have three sheep, $1,000. Yeah. And you don't want to leave? You see those guys there? They shoot you. No way. Yeah. So we paid $1,000. <laughs> Holy moly. Good thing you had your wallet on you. Yeah. Huh? So Good thing you had your wallet on you. Well, I, I, I actually didn't. I, I, I had cashier's to, checks? I, no, I had to go through the banking <laughs> authorities and that you're, you're like, you take a post check, right? I took out a third right? mortgage in my what house. What was the exchange rate like? Was it, was it really like $300? <laughs> you give us ruples. What a crazy experience. So you land, 
mafia shows up. Did you know they were mafia at the time? Were you like right away? Oh, we sort of figured it out. Yeah. And they had military like. Oh, they had military them. guys behind them. Were they military guys or were they? And, but this gal, in this, I mean, she was decked out in furs, blonde gal. <clears throat> and there wasn't a spot dust anywhere on it, that vehicle. And were you at an airport or where? Yeah. Like a Russian airport. Yeah. Wow. It, it was a private helicopter pad, okay? So and they're waiting for us when we came in and to shake us down, okay? In 2001, Russia was, Putin was the uh, prime minister at the time, right? Yeah, so. Because then he, then he left and then he came back. So what? I'm just curious. I'm just putting it all together. Who cares? He didn't, he didn't have any influence on these guys. We had, we had the, what I said was the, ex, was the equivalent of our interior, you know, cabinet guy there with us, with us. And it still didn't matter. And he matter. goes like, you're screwed, pay him the thousand dollars. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah. yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Who cares? You want to get out of here? You pay us or we shoot you. Do you think they would have shot you? Nah, I don't think so. But we probably would have got, wouldn't have got our sheep. Yeah, they probably would have yeah, taken our sheep yeah, and you'd exactly. spent some more yeah, time in yeah. Russia trying right. to get out. Right. So it was worth $1,000. 1,000 rubles. Put you rubles. on a plateau. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did Jerry pass away on that trip? Yeah. Yes, he did. Finish the story. But later. Finish the story. Finish I've waited story. 10 years to hear this story, Ryan, so. You waited 10 I never, years. I, I knew what happened when I met, I met you in 2006. No, we flew back. We flew back to Moscow. And then back out to the Siberian coast. Ohoski? O-S-H-O-K? I can't remember. Ohoski. And we sat there for four days because of a thermal inversion and we couldn't fly out to help go. We were hunting Siberian snow sheep, okay? And um, just the, the first one I was just explaining to you was, was uh, Pucharana. Pucharana snow sheep, different okay. subspecies. Okay. Okay. And so we get there, a host, can't fly out. We're walking around harvesting berries and Jerry's having a hard time. Chest pains and walking yeah. again. I kept on telling him, man, you need to go home. You think this is, if you think this is gastric stuff, it ain't. So you guys were going to go on part two of your trip? Huh? I thought you guys were on your way home. No, no, no. This is the, the one I just described is the first part of the trip. So there's two, you're going to the second part of the yeah, trip for, right, right. for the sheep. Yeah. Okay. So your question? No question. I'm just. Oh, okay, I just want to okay. make sure I'm following you. Yeah, so, okay. so, so uh, you have the mafia. We're sitting there waiting to fly out. Can't fly out because of fog, this, that. And the night before he flew out, he we're in a guide's place, and we're he's um, <coughs> you know one of those L-shaped sort of uh, um, divans. Okay, wake up at three o'clock in the morning. He's going to Roger. Roger, I go, what? He says, I, I, I just, I'm not feeling good. I'm having a lot of chest pain. And um, 
I go over and he's just sweating like crazy. And I said, dude, you're having a freaking heart attack. There's not a goddamn thing I can do about it except to give you some aspirin. And believe me, carry aspirin with you. Okay? So I did. He starts feeling better. Gets up the next morning. Now we're going to fly out. And I said, Jerry, we need to go home. You just had a major heart attack. I didn't. I said, you did. Wouldn't listen to me. We flew out that morning. We flew down to the uh, coast of Ahosi. Helicopter lands. Everybody gets out, this and that. We're going to, okay, well, we might as well fly to the top of the mountains where these guys are getting the camp set up. So you just had a heart attack. Now you guys are going to fly to the top I of the told him he had a heart attack. He didn't believe me. Okay. You're the doctor. Yeah, I'm the doctor. And so we go, you know, he flies up the top of the mountain. You get to the top of the mountain, it's about 100 degrees. It's a thermal inversion, okay? You start looking around. For, the, for those. The helicopter takes <laughs> off, goes back to a host, right? We're 150 miles from their civilization, okay? These guys are down below when it's 50 degrees, setting up the camp. We look around, we spot these sheep on this mountainside about three drainages away. Go across the top, go back, and dude, Jerry's way behind us, okay? We get over there and we get to the top of these things, and these, we're above these sheep and we're, we're looking down at them. It's so steep that the, that the sheep have dug in an area where they, so they could lay down. Okay, I pick out the biggest one and I shoot it. We're above it, 150 yards, whatever. Okay, they all get up. They come that dog that that sheep goes down. The other ones come up and come running right around us, maybe 30 yards away. Wow! And uh, I said, Jerry, that one, shoot it. He didn't do anything, right? Okay, then they they're gone, right? We go down to my sheep. How come you didn't shoot? Well, I, I, I just listen. We didn't have an answer, right? So we skin out my sheep and this and that, and we have me and him and a Russian guide. And he skins out the sheep. This Russian guy, he doesn't doesn't know to, doesn't know a word of English. And I go like, "How you doing?" Jerry, well, I'm okay. I said, uh, okay, well, I'm thinking like, no, he's not okay. So I give him another aspirin and I said, okay, I don't know, I'm not sure how we're going to get back to base camp, but we're about eight miles away and we have to hike there. Wow. Okay. So we sort of think about, we had, we had a little lunch and this and that and, um, we get the sheep skinned out. Guy puts it in his backpack. He starts back up the hill. And I'm talking, we're talking about, it's an, you're it's not, we're talking about all four. It's an, yeah, it's, an, it's a, it's a yeah. steep mountainside okay. where these sheep hang out. I go like, okay, yeah. I guess that's where we're going. So he's, uh, this guy's ahead of us and he's got a backpack on. I got a backpack, my rifle. And uh, it's hot. 
I mean, it's like 90. And I looked down. And, and he went from 50 degrees. Up stuff and, he huh? went from 50 degrees to 90 degrees. Yeah. 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 Thermal inversion. Yeah. And so he stops, and I look down, and Jerry's grabbing his stuff and still packing it up. And I look down at him, and I go like, Jerry, and I'm not. Can't even hear that wall away from him. I says, you know, if anything's going on, if you're not feeling good, you just stop, and we'll make sure you get out of here. So, well, last words I ever said to him. I made he took guy this guy turns around and starts hiking back up the hill. I start I don't know if the guy went ten steps and I hear this, there's all these rocks tumbling. Look down, here's Jerry rolling down the freaking hill. Okay. I go flying back down there. I did CPR for half an hour. You did. Oh man. And that was maybe that picture that you saw? The one hanging in here. 10 feet, 15 feet from where we wound up with him dead. Because you climbed back up and then climbed back down. and came back down, yeah. Yeah. So did he die from a heart attack or did he die from the fall? He died from a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. So I, mean, I did CPR and everything. You know, I know what to do. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now he, he was. You know, there's no, there was no saving him. Just a massive heart attack. Yeah, he he had a massive heart attack the night before. I tried to convince him to go home the next day. He wouldn't do it. So then, where did you go from there? So you're well. Where we went from there is I sent the guide back down to the base camp, which is eight miles away, or six or eight miles away. And did he understand what happened? Because he was speaking yeah, English. He, yeah, he did. I mean, he obviously knew the guy was dead, right? I said, you, me, here, okay? So I stayed there all night with the guy. I didn't want to leave him because there was, you know, a lot of bears in the area. Yeah. So I, didn't, didn't, I thought it would be pretty for, poor form to leave that situation without a gun, okay? So I stayed there all night with the guy, and next day they came back up and they had a bunch of people with them, including the uh, police side. And they took me over here and they took the guide over there because oh, no. they thought we killed the guy, okay? Because he had a big gash on his head, which was not bleeding, of course, when you don't, when you're dead, you don't bleed, right? Yeah. So we did that and spent a day on the mountain. We had a monster storm come in, and there was like eight of us camped on the side of a mountain. I'm telling you, it was like that. We had to, we were like sardines in this little fucking tent. And we left the body outside in the body bag, which is uh, aluminum, very eerie looking thing. Okay. And there's your, one of your best buddies. Yeah. So, that, you know, a few days later, well, we get down, we drag the body down to where we think the helicopter can take it out. Helicopter wouldn't land there. They circle around, circle around, circle around. Don't land. So we got a, a drainage that goes down a water 
uh, you know, like a little creek that goes down there. And we can see the helicopter land down there about three miles away below us. And they wouldn't come and land where we were. And so we, um, we had, at that point, we had about five guys or six guys. And we had a young guy who was an, uh, a, um, a, he was an interpreter of ours. He was like 18 years old, but he spoke English. The only one that did. The other four guys, we made a treva and um, put him on a stretcher, made a stretcher, and it took us uh, a day and a half to get down through that three mile stretch because we had to cut the trail, basically. Wow. Get down there. And we get down there, now the helicopter, of course, is gone. And so we hoisted his body up into a tree so the bears wouldn't get him. And um, we hiked back to camp. Told the helicopter guys, get your ass back up there and pick that body up, okay? Well, understand something. These helicopters are owned by the Russian mafia. You hurt their helicopters, they may hurt you. And that's what they're afraid of. So the pilots are scared. To scared shitless. Yeah. That something's going to happen to them if they don't, if they screw up their helicopter. But anyway, we knew they would land the helicopter there. So we went back up there, dropped him out of the box, put him in the helicopter, flew back down to the base camp, back to Petropavlovsk. And um, we stayed there until uh, the Russian consultant, the uh, American consultant came up from uh, Vedabelskot. And um, Where's the funeral home? I don't know. Is there a funeral home? I don't know. There are no funeral homes in Eastern Russia. There aren't any. So what happens? So they put this guy in a in a tin can, basically, in a sort of a tin casket, put him in the back of a truck. And so we drive out to the so-called funeral home, and here's this bunch of headstones and stuff in this truck that's sitting there with this casket in it. So at this point, you're worried about preserving his body and getting Well, yeah, we were trying to figure out how to get this guy back back home. And so there are no no funeral homes there, okay? There's no such thing, okay? So we want to taking him back and taking him back to Moscow and having him cremated and sent him back over to the States. So. How long did that take? A week. So did he have family here? Yeah. He did. So who made that call? Me. What was that? Like? Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I did it on, on a cell phone with us. With, uh, here's the interesting part of this deal. When everything... All this stuff shaked out, and we sent back a, we sent back a. Uh, Do you want some ice in that? Huh? Do you want some ice? No, no. We sent back a, 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 a communication to uh, the United States. What came back was Roger. I mean, Jerry Wendell had died. Oh, so that confused. Oh. Oh, nobody yeah. knew who died. And so, who did that go to? Did that go to Maryland? Huh? Did Maryland get that? Maryland got that message, 
And of course, she sort of figured out that I didn't die. He did. <laughs> <laughs> how, did how did she come to that conclusion? I don't know, because I guess it was better shape. Who fucking knows? That's all. You can say whatever you want on here. The internet has no, uh, uh, what do you call it? See, no uh, sensor bureaus or anything. Okay, well. Say whatever you want. Okay, so. But it does go no on the internet. No one really knew who died for a week. And you couldn't communicate with anybody? You couldn't no, call. because we were inside of a freaking mountain for a week. What, you know. What was that, uh, the, the night you spent there? Huh? The night that you spent there. What were the... The night. We spent seven nights Well, the, the night that you stayed with him after he passed. Yeah. When you were on the mountain. Yeah. What What yeah. was that night like for you? It was... Uh, uh, it was, I didn't sleep. <laughs> Have you seen that movie, that Igor Sanctions with Clint Eastwood? No. Where he's a mountain climber and he's so. a spy. There's a scene where... Uh, so everyone thinks that there's three mountain climbers, four mountain climbers, and... Clint Eastwood is a hired assassin, and he is told that there's another assassin on the team that he has to kill, yeah. but he doesn't know which, nobody knows no, which no, of the three who it is. Yeah. And so that happens where they're climbing, and one guy gets hit in the head with a rock and dies, and they camp overnight on the side of the mountain with the guy that died hanging from the rope, and that's what I pictured when, I, when we were telling okay. the story. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, the communication issues were a big problem. So you're in Russia with a with a Jerry cremated and you can't get on a satellite phone or email or anything and communicate. No, we communicated here? via satellite phone, but partially effective, you know. I mean, people uh, not understanding a, a Russian guy trying to speak English, see what I'm saying? And they had limited uh, they limited power. So they couldn't talk very long, or they'd be, be cut down. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go to the yeah. bathroom. Okay. Ryan and I will have plenty to talk about while you're yeah. gone. <clears throat> so one of the themes that I'm finding, Ryan, is that we get like an hour and a half into it, and we get to the awesome. Well, it, 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 it's just it, it's interesting parts of, of whatever the story or a story or... It just gets a little bit deeper and maybe a little off topic, but it's interesting off topic. You know, relationships are hard because Rod, Roger's the most interesting person I know, but it's like Roger's not a celebrity, but it's like if you went out to dinner with uh, Clint Eastwood, would you talk about Clint Eastwood movies all night? <laughs> no, you wouldn't, because because that's the last thing he wants to talk about. So when when Roger and I go hunting and fishing, we talk about a lot about business, a lot about family, but the ninety percent of what we're talking about is we're talking about hunting and fishing. Yeah, now that guy is the most educated salmon fisherman I've ever met, and he's taught me everything I know about salmon fishing, and I think I'm pretty good. Uh, so to get the opportunity to ask him some of these questions uh, is good. And, and, you know, you know me, a lot of times you say that I overthink what people think about me, but I'm very careful what I say because I don't want to, you know, rub people the wrong way. And so I've never really asked Roger too much. So I've always wanted to hear this story. And 
That's a this mi- that's a mind blowing story, story. Is crazy. The version of the story is nothing like any version I've heard from other people secondhand. Uh, cause of death is different. The country of origin has been different. Like I've kind of repeated parts of the story, and people ask, and it's totally wrong. It's like that telephone game. Just just being out in the wild is one thing. Being so far from any civilization uh, on a mountainside alone, not even knowing if people are coming back for you. Did did those thoughts enter your mind as you're sitting there with Jerry? Jerry's deceased. No, I was thinking it was that um, there may be bears showing up. And there were a lot of bears. We were just above Timberline. Grizzly bears, right? There were grizzly bears, yeah. A lot in the area, a lot. Wow. Big population. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking there, I'm going to have to sit here and defend the body from the bears. And uh, it had to be emotional. Well, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you something. My, my initial feeling was sort of pissed off at Jerry. For being so stubborn? Because he listened to me. I told him, you had a major heart attack. We need to go home. But you wouldn't listen. I'm going to go back in there. I'm going to hike up this freaking mountain. Really? See what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was pissed. I was mad at that body who was laying up on the ground. Pissed his pants, shit his butt. You know, yeah. Here he is, he's dead on a dead on a stump, and he's on a he's on a hill. I can hardly stand up on, let alone, you know. Was was this hunt you guys went on? I don't mean any disrespect by this. No, that's okay. Was this a like Patagonia for me when we go to Jurassic Lake? No. No, no, no. Let me let me finish what I'm saying. When we go to Jurassic Lake, for my lifetime so far, that's a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. Gotcha. For Jerry, was this in a once-in-a-lifetime hunt? No, or, no. Or we've, we've hunted some... Yeah, no, it was not. So it wasn't like he had saved his life savings? No, not at all. And he wasn't no, going to give no, up? No, it was. We, we'd done sheep hunts together and all kind, other kinds of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Wasn't. So... Uh, you guys made it home? Yeah. We flew home, and interestingly enough, when we flew home, somebody else on the plane had a cardiac event, and we had to land in Finland. <laughs> oh, my God. You're like, funny. no, you're Drag like, his <laughs> ass off the freaking plane. You're like, no more heart attacks. <laughs> uh, That's, um, that's an amazing story. That's totally different than the version I had kind of heard or thought I heard or whatever. I don't know. What, what did you hear? I, it doesn't even... Well, it, Cody said it's like the telephone game. You know, it just... Each each version gets a little bit different. I heard that... You heard... This is the, the real version, okay? I, I'm glad I heard it because uh, uh, I think there's a lot to take away from that story. Well, what what is here? This is what's the takeaway from the story. 
listen to your dentist. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I, I said, you, had, you just had a, a major cardiac event here. No, I didn't. I, had a, I said, no, you didn't. We need to go home now. And we've been on a, a, a hold for five days because of the thermal inversion, totally fogged in, right? He couldn't, he couldn't walk 15 feet without having to rest. I said, dude, you're in trouble here. We need to go home. Why, why didn't he go home? He just, I don't know. Just stubbornness or stubbornness, excitement? Yeah. Or? Stubbornness. And then that when he had that major event, which I told you about, I, he woke me up and as I've had this, I'm going diaphoretic and they're going, his heart rate is like in the, in the freaking stratosphere. And I said, dude, you're in very serious trouble here. We need to go home. And I gave him the aspirin, settled everything down, felt pretty good the next morning. I said, Jerry, we need to leave. Abandon the hunt. Go home. He wouldn't do it. So if you and I are in Patagonia, can you put yourself in his shoes? Or would you be like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here? No, because it's a whole different deal, okay? We're in Patagonia. We're in a, a lodge. You have... Communication. Right, well, let's say you, if, if the roles are reversed, could you understand him not wanting to? No, actually, I couldn't because yeah. I think he was pretty stubborn. Was that his personality in general? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, what, that's actually what attracted him to me. I mean, yeah. Yeah. At that point in time, I go like, God, look at how life like Jerry does. He does everything he wants to whenever he wants to. And he's still working. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What did he do for work? Can I ask that? He was a landscaping architect. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about you and Dirk and Steve Simpson and William. You know, as I look up to you guys, as look at these guys working hard, uber successful, and look at the adventures and the fishing and the freedoms and they have. And, and over the last few years, Roger, it's really motivated me. Well, I'm glad it's been a, a, a positive Absolutely. thing in your life. Absolutely. All you guys, you and Dirk, Dirk especially, I mean, uh, I'm very proud to have you guys as friends. So, well, thank you. Well, um, I'm kind of like, a, I'm not an emotional guy, but I'm, uh, it's kind of an emotional story. It's what I'm going to think about for a long time. Yeah, and it, um, now, nothing of the stupidity that I showed. I should have just taken him by the neck. I said, no. Yeah. We are, we're going. I'm going home. You can yeah. go home by yourself. I mean, I mean, that's no sheep in there. doesn't mean shit to me. Okay? I mean, I killed a nice. Now, who fucking cares? Yeah. 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 He's my buddy. And like I said before, all this stuff has really little to do with other than the experience and being with friends or not friends or just being by yourself and being in, uh, camping out in the wilderness. And um, how many people 
get to do that anymore. Nobody. How many people get off the couch, turn off the TV, take their weekend and go do something? Very little. Very little. I guess I'm just the opposite. I mean, I, I, I just um, sitting around and I hold my deck down doesn't do it for me. I think <laughs> that's why we're friends. Yeah. Well, um, let's end on one positive note because this is a, a, a hunt. You know what? Look at this title, The Hunt for Success. I think we covered both ends of that spectrum. I think we have. Right. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. Yes. What's the correlation between the success you've had in hunting and the financial and business success you've had? Wow. That's a good question. I think the, the, the quest for the, um, it's the quest. It's the quest. It's the quest for whatever it is. It's the unachievable or the achievable. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I think the way you described it, it's perfect. Yeah. <coughs> that's a good question. I look at these sheep mounts and stuff here, and I go like, that was a quest. I achieved it. Or I didn't achieve it. But still a quest. And what, going back to what we talked about, mentorship and accountability, you didn't have anybody holding your hand helping you achieve these goals of these animals just like you did in your business no and I, yeah, i've always point. wondered what you kind of the value you had in this place that it have some significance in your success and hunting in your business and i think you just kind of answered that uh, yeah i think sort of yeah yeah sort of. uh i'm gonna end ryan you got anything i, I know uh I hear you over there. No, it's 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 just been uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun to fun to hear some of your stories. I mean, we we could go on for hours. I know we could. Actually, we could. We could. <laughs> and and so here's the deal. So uh, uh, we're gonna wrap it up, but but I want to have you back on. Absolutely. And and uh, uh, maybe we can include some other guests. Maybe when you know Williams here, I'd love to hear about his oh, business yeah. success. And yeah. We could meet together. Now that you kind of know the format, and uh, Roger, I'm proud to call you my friend, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And thank you for for letting us host our podcast here. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely thank amazing. The famous Roger Wendell. Uh, I'm gonna do what everyone says to do: subscribe to the Hunt for Success podcast. Be a subscriber; you'll be notified on future episodes. Um, share it. I hope you guys like it. Share it. Give us feedback. Post comments. Uh, we are rookies. We're developing it. So uh, your feedback's appreciated. Good night, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Dude, good job, Roger.